Well, looks like we've just hit time, so we'll uh, jump back in at chapter 16. We'll do a little bit to get ourselves back in the context before we just jump in where we left off. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the revelation of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and for that knowledge that our sins are completely and fully forgiven, that we are reconciled to you. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we might rightly understand your Son's preaching, marvel in the glory, and be edified by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, just to give a little bit of recontextualization, if we open up to 16, Luke chapter 16, verse 14, we again want to have, we want to see the context of this parable so we can get that first level, the rhetorical punch of Jesus' actual preaching, even as we meditate upon the additional levels, the way Jesus freights his language and what that means for us as Christians. And we can see in the rich man and Lazarus, it's even debated if it's a parable, as I mentioned before. Is it a parable or is it reality? There are all kinds of tangents related to this particular text. So if there are any that you are interested in that I don't comment on, just please bring it up. I'm sure to leave some on the cutting room floor, as it were. We... uh, I'll spend just a couple minutes at the end, if I can remember, talking about the cosmological implications. So cosmology is thinking of, for lack of a better word, the geography of the cosmos, the visible and invisible. Now, the visible is what you can see with your telescope and with your eyeballs, with your microscope if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty. So that's the visible world. But what about the invisible cosmos, the invisible world? So... Heaven, hell, how is that constructed? Is there a purgatory? What's the intermediate state, etc., etc.? So all of those things can also tangentially be discussed as they relate to this text. But again, just aspiring toward that first level uh, lens or frame, at verse 14 we read Luke's editorial comments, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. All right, so we see then a continued theme with money and the limitations thereof. There seems to be amongst the Pharisees a view that if you're wealthy, you're blessed by God and everything's good. So that's one of the inferences sort of behind this. Now, in terms of justifying themselves before men, you'll recall we reflected on these realities that the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees in particular named here by Luke, view themselves as better than the Gentiles by virtue of their being born of Abraham. So this is a frequent obstacle Jesus encounters when he's trying to cut to their hearts and get them to repent and be reconciled to God. And they're like, well, we're already sons of Abraham. 
We don't need any further reconciliation than that. So this is salvation based on biology and based on a human or fleshly father. So we're going to see how that is overturned in Jesus' parable. So again, that first distinction, how they justify themselves above men, the way they cut it first is we're better than the Gentiles. We're the sons of Abraham. We have the law and we follow the law. Now that we have the law and we follow the law does the second level of judgment. That is, within those who are the biological sons of Abraham, we're the true ones. The tax collectors, nope. The sinners, nope. We're the ones that follow the law, they don't. Okay, So you've got these two broad categories of them justifying themselves over and against other men. But of course, as Jesus comments, God sees your hearts and what you exalt, what is exalted above men, is an abomination in the sight of God. Okay, so those are the, just very broadly speaking, <clears throat> the, the context and the themes we have in the background of this parable or this teaching of Jesus that, again, starts at 19. We did the run-up last week. I won't do that again here. Uh, and then 19, we got about halfway into this particular part of his teaching. Let's just pick up at 19. I won't, I'll do very sparing commentary since we went in-depth last week. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So again, Jesus has done a masterful contrast here and I pointed this out in a little more detail last week than I will tonight, but the rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen. Lazarus is clothed in sores. We would presume rags too, but certainly sores. The rich man feasts sumptuously every single day, and Lazarus uh, desires to be fed with the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. All right, the dogs, we, you can take that in two different ways, in a menacing sort of way, that the dogs are seeking to devour him. He's already at the gates of death, as it were. Or you can see the dogs in licking his wounds, doing for Lazarus what the rich man wouldn't do. And if that's the case, it's all the more poignant of a dagger because from a Jewish perspective, the Gentiles are dogs and they're frequently called dogs, unclean beasts. You even see Jesus speak this way um, to the woman who he says, it is not right to give the children's food, to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. Now that's preceded by him saying, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, if you've got modern definitions of racism in your mind, uh, you're going to see our Lord falling afoul of those. <laughs> Which then calls into question, not our Lord, but our modern definitions of racism. Right? There is simply not the biblical concern for that kind of thing 
um, that you see in American culture today. Have you ever heard? I've heard that softened to a puppies, where Jesus was calling them puppies. I'm like, yeah. You know, people try to really walk that back as much as they can. Yeah, there's a preacher's trick, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and in context, it doesn't work, because in context, he is challenging her faith. He does a threefold challenge of her faith, just increasing, increasing um, put-downs, rebuttals, refusals. And she continues to persist and uh, even ends up turning this statement of Jesus, this final statement that it's not right to take what belongs to the children and give it to the dogs. And she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. And that causes Jesus to marvel, which is an amazing thing. So, you know, again, that's, that's amazing in itself. Do, do, we have a Jesus, do we believe in a Jesus who would look upon the things we do and say and marvel? I tend to think not. We should. <laughs> we should grant Jesus that humanity, that fullness of humanity, and we should live our lives as lives of faith. If you've been in the Proverbs class, you've seen the recurring theme of causing God to delight by what we do, causing Jesus to marvel by our faith. And this is contrasted with the disciples, who have very little faith. Jesus takes this Gentile woman, whom he's just called a dog, and points her out as an example of faith to his disciples, who have been traipsing around with him for who knows how long, probably years at the time, and they haven't achieved what she already has. Okay? So that's a, that's a tangent and a side, um, but again, if this is, these are dogs, these are viewed as unclean animals by the Jews, so either they're making him unclean and showing his denigrated position, um, obviously he's precluded from going into the temple anyways, laid at the gate, and or... Um, showing that even these unclean animals are showing compassion to him where the rich man won't. All right, either way you take it, it serves the point. Obviously, Jesus meant it one way, it was taken one way. We've just kind of lost that sense. We don't know if it's this or that, but it's one of the two. He can tell us when we see him face to face. All right, so we've got this um, compare-contrast going on at uh, Luke chapter 16, Verses 19 through 21. Then at 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side is fine, but bosom is better, because that's language that indicates to the original hearers that this is a feast. And so he's reclining at Abraham's bosom in the position of honor at the great feast of the intermediate state. So intermediate state, if the final state is what we see at the end of Revelation, the new Jerusalem coming down, the new heavens and the new earth, all the saints raised in their bodies, that's the final state. That's the state, that's the close of this age and the dawn of the new age. Now, what the New Age holds is wonderful and dynamic and mysterious, and it's going to be incredible. If we think of the New Age as this static sort of reality, like, well, and that's the end of the book, and we all lived happily ever after, then we're completely misreading the scriptures and what they have to say. Um, 
not only is there an age to come, but there are ages, plural, to come, of which we will all have a part and play a part, and who knows what there will be. All right. <coughs> Got to recollect myself. Those chimes uh, remind me of, <laughs> of chimes my parents had um, in my household, the Westminster chimes. Still stuck in my head. I I just turned it off. Oh, no problem. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just explaining why all of a sudden my brain flatlined there. (laughs) Okay, so so then they're at the intermediate state then, which is the state before the resurrection of the body. And we're given a description then here. To be sure, there are poetic aspects or elements to it. I mean, again, look how masterfully Jesus is doing a compare and contrast. So the poor man, Lazarus, dies and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The reality, of course, is that his body is buried into the earth. But does Jesus mention any of that? No. He sees this as a glorious victory and a deliverance where the angels come and take Lazarus to Abraham's bosom, to the place of honor. So he goes from laying beside the gate in a place of absolute dishonor to a a heavenly place of absolute honor. Maybe a word here too, even though this might be letting the cat out of the bag, who cares? Uh, Lazarus is named, as we mentioned last week, the rich man isn't. We did this kind of theology of God remembers your sins and forgets your name. (laughs) Or he forgets your sins, remembers them no more, and remembers you. That's the prayer, Lord, remember us in your kingdom. Uh, And so that in and of itself is a is a tell of the reality that underlies this. But the name retained of Lazarus, or Hebrew Eleazar, um, means God is my help, or something to the effect, somewhere right around that. Okay, so even the name tips us off that Lazarus, though he is living his worst life now, and laying at the gate covered in sores, trusts the, the God of Abraham. And because he has the faith of Abraham, he is truly Abraham's son. So this is all theology that will be spelled out in great detail by Paul in Romans chapters 9 through 11. But this is the reality that not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of the sons of Abraham are sons of Abraham. What's Paul getting at? Well, what he reveals is that the Israel of the flesh, the sons of Abraham of the flesh, are only Abraham's sons, are only true Israelites if they have the faith of Abraham, the faith of Israel. Yeah. That, uh, looking at that and then kind of plugging that into this idea of race, kind of just renders race meaningless. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's two sides to that coin. There's two sides to that coin. So um, I know race is a big topic in the LCMS these days. Um, what you see in terms of the gospel is that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, what kind of Gentile you are doesn't matter. What matters is faith. 
If you have faith, you are grafted in and you are a son of Abraham according to the faith. So that's, you know, regardless whether you're black, white, yellow, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, but here's the, here's the thing that's kind of happened, and this is a mistake because what it's going to do is prevent us from reading and understanding Scripture. And also, it's going to pervert us from really a full and dynamic understanding of what God has in store. And that is, we don't want to get this sort of Gnostic idea that simply because there, it, we are made one people through faith in Christ, that that's the end of races or the end of racial differences. That, that has a lot of presuppositions within it that are in error. The easiest way to, to present that is to show that in Revelation, it's the glory of the various nations or ethne that are all drawn in. You might think about this too. How is Jesus raised? Is Jesus raised from the dead as a Chinese woman? Oh, are you going to be raised from the dead as an African-American woman? (laughs) No. So you're going to be raised from the dead in your body, glorified. With your genes, your genetics, your heritage, glorified. Um, The races are part of God's creation. He establishes the different ethne, the different races, and sets their boundaries. They're his good creation. And of course, there's intermingling and intermixing, and it's blurred sometimes, and you can't tell what's what. Who cares? I mean, about the only people that care about that are these kind of racial purists who do probably have some strange and sinful motives. But just because we've got an abuse there doesn't mean we want to deny the biblical reality and become Gnostics. Oh, we're all going to be raised as, what, whites? (laughs) That's pretty racist. (laughs) We're all going to be raised as what then? So Jesus is raised um, in a glorious body, but that's in continuity with his body born of Mary, who is a Hebrew. And I'm going to be born as me. It's Germanic heritage, and you'll be reborn as you. And and so Christ is the firstborn from the dead, will be born from the dead after him, in our bodies glorified, and we bring the glory of the nations into heaven. So there's the true diversity on the one hand, and the true unity on the other hand, that we're all there by grace, through faith, on account of Christ in whom we have believed, and cleansed by his blood and his blood alone. We want to hold those two truths together. So, like I said, I know it's a hot-button issue right now in the LCMS, and there's all kinds of drama going on. Um, I don't really care. I'm, what I'm, the two points, that, the two sides of the coin that I told you, are like I'm waiting for a biblical uh, you know, counter-argument. <laughs> and I don't think you're gonna be, anyone's going to be able to present one. Okay, those are two sides of the coin we have to uphold as Christians. Okay, so with that, you know, aside, and obviously just a tangent based on our current circumstances, um, the claim that they, and this isn't explicit in the text, but the claim they frequently make is we are Abraham's sons. Remember the famous, um, if you abide in my word, you will truly be my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they're like, Free? We're sons of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone. You can see there the theology that they have. That's just one of many examples 
where their, their salvific worldview is based on their biological heritage connected with Abraham. What Paul does masterfully in Romans 9 through 11, it says, regardless of what nation you are from, if you have faith in the God of Abraham, you have his faith. You are the sons of Abraham. For we who are Gentiles, we are grafted in. That doesn't mean you're a second-class citizen. When you're grafted in, you actually become one ontological whole with that tree that is Abraham. So this also then, I know this is a fine point, but some of you care about this, and that is uh, we do not have a replacement theology, strictly speaking, that the church replaces Israel. That's actually a wrong way of looking at it. And that entire statement, you have a replacement theology, the church replaces Israel in the New Testament, is actually brought about um, by dispensationalists. So there's the dispensation or the age or the covenant that God has with his people, and there's the dispensation or age that God has with people through Christ. That's a, historically speaking, that's a brand new idea on the scene. I don't know when that comes up. Somewhere probably in the 18th or 19th century. Isn't Darby maybe the most famous dispensationalist? I think he was 19th century, maybe 18th century. Um, but this idea is just washed over Western Christendom, and we all just sort of assume it's true, and then we get into all kinds of false readings of Romans, like there's still hope that God will save the Jews based on some Old Testament covenant he has with them, that he'll save them even if they what? Reject Christ? There's no name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Christ Jesus. The same Paul writes that. And we forget, too, that Paul himself is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So, all that to say, then, it's not truly a replacement theology. The Gentiles are grafted into the family of faith that has existed, in Paul's argument, since Abraham. Why is Paul making that argument? Because he's in... He's in a context in which it, Christendom is largely Hebrew at that time by nationality. If Paul were speaking more broadly, he might well include Noah. He might well include Adam and Eve. They also are part of that family by faith and faith in the Messiah. So we went through that last week where we talked about the oldest religion is Christianity. And what you actually have developing then in the, in the Sinaitic period from Mount Sinai forward is Judaism, which is not faith in the Messiah, but a different system where you simply do the sacrifices and obey the law superficially and you're better than other people and God accepts you on that basis. It's complete perversion of the Old Testament theology proper. And we made that parallel with the New Testament, where the New Testament is, again, from its founding, we are saved by grace through faith on account of Christ, and slowly over the centuries you get a perversion of false Christianity that now takes many forms, but a false Christianity that is based on, well, you have to add something to that. Maybe that something is your free will decision, maybe that something is try your best and let God do the rest, 
Um, maybe that is, uh, you know, have you done enough um, kind of theology or are you walking the walk that you're talking and this kind of thing. All of this subverts and destroys justification by grace through faith apart from our works. So you see that legalizing tendency just repeating itself in the New Testament era as well. And that's what the Reformation, at least the Lutheran Reformation, was uh, all about. You see that even in the Old Testament, though, because you look at Saul in particular. God gave him things, but he didn't want to do it. He was supposed to get rid of that one with the Amorites or whatever, mm-hmm. and he didn't do it. He let the yeah. guy that came, and Samuel has to come to him and says, you're not doing... He doesn't want the goats and the sheep and all this other crap. Mm-hmm. He wants your obedience. Mm-hmm. He yeah. Yeah, good point. So when you're looking at the when you're looking at the Old Testament scriptures by and large, when you're talking especially like Moses going forward, you see two fundamental afflictions, spiritual afflictions of the people of Israel. One is from the outside, at least conceptually, and that is the intrusion of foreign gods. The second is this internal thing, which is much more subtle. And that's this idea of like, no, Yahweh alone, but we live however we want to live. We just give him the sacrifices he wants and he's off our case. And by the way, then we can look down our nose at everybody else. That's the sort of Judaizing or Phariseeizing of the Old Testament text. So you can see both of those errors in place. And why it's so important for us to be acquainted with those, especially in our day and age, is because those are the same two fundamental enemies and attacks we face today as a church. Paganism from without trying to intrude in. And notice Christianity today who gives way to paganism is just like Israel of old who gave way to paganism. They don't give up on Jesus. They just say Jesus and this other thing that happens to be entirely contrary to Jesus. (laughs) So it's syncretistic, right? Because it's, it's, um, the Christian faith is an exclusive faith. Yahweh and Yahweh alone, Christ and Christ alone, no, in, no external intrusion. What we see today eroding the church in the West is this external pagan attack of syncretism. Well, keep your Jesus, but make sure he's got a rainbow flag waving in the background. Okay? Um, keep your Jesus, but make sure he is telling you exactly what 21st century progressive American politics are telling you is right or wrong. Okay. And then internally, you've still got the same issue. still got those legalistic issue. Um, alive and well and constant uh, in the life of the church is a threat. And we see its many forms today. Um, but really codified in Rome as a communion where, I mean, in no uncertain terms, Christ opens the door to heaven. It's up to you, Mary, and the saints to get you in. <laughs> okay. So maybe enough on that digression, but this text leads us into these much larger themes of the scriptures and themes of reality. All right, so the poor man at verse 22, he dies and is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and notice the difference. He was buried And in Hades. So, whereas the poor man died and is carried by the angels, 
the rich man died and was buried. Whereas the poor man lands at Abraham's bosom in the great feast, the rich man lands in Hades, being in torment. All right, we... Oh, hi, ladies. Pity you guys online. We were just delivered a whole bunch of delicious-looking treats. Thank you so much. Wish there was some way I could uh, trans transmit that to you online. Zuckerberg hasn't come up with that yet. So, okay, so you see Jesus continuing with this masterful contrast between the two. You also see in the intermediate state, then, Abraham's bosom as one locale and Hades as another locale. A place, of bless, a place of bliss and a place of torment. All right, at 24, Jesus says, And he, that is the rich man, called out Father Abraham. So this is a direct rhetorical stab at the Pharisees, who are always claiming that they don't need to listen to Jesus because they have Abraham as their father. So here he's got a Hebrew man who was blessed by God with wealth, who is now calling Abraham his father, even while he's in torment in Hades. I mean, this is a sword through the heart for the Pharisees who are hearing this. All right, what does he say? Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. What's the first contrast? Lazarus was laying at his gate. Did the rich man bring him out of dinner? Not even once. So now the rich man wants, I mean, this is completely ironic, the rich man wants Lazarus to come and do for him what he would not do for himself, what he would not do for Lazarus himself. It also shows a certain kind of self-centeredness, doesn't it? That's um, it's part of the hell of hell is being locked into your self-centeredness. As we're going to see, it's knowing that you rejected God, knowing that your position is irreparable. What's that line from Dante's Inferno? Forsake hope, all ye who enter here. Or something like that. That's the other aspect of hell that's terrible. Um, The torment doesn't end. There is no slaking of the thirst. And then, last but not least, is this locked-in self-centeredness. Even in death, he thinks that Lazarus is a means to the end of his own pleasures. So a locking-in. If you've read... um, If you've read C.S. Lewis' The Great Divorce, it's a fantastic exploration of these themes. I think there's a busload of people in hell who go to heaven and they can't stand it because it's too real and it's too selfless and they're all completely self-absorbed and completely unfit for heaven. Even if they were in heaven, they'd make it hell just by virtue of the state of their soul. Yes, sir? It seems like 
he also thinks that there's still this class system in <laughs> Abraham. He's like, oh yeah, just send this guy over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's still bossing around Lazarus like he's a slave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <coughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so um, yeah, good point. Good observation. All right. I want him to dip the end of his finger in cold water and cool my tongue, which is kind of an absurd image if you stop and think about it. I mean, and then just one drop on the tip of his tongue. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a shocking, it's, I mean, it's fantastic preaching because of the imagery. That's what he wants. And then he says, for I am in anguish in this flame. So we get a glimpse of what Jesus preaches more than any other preacher, and that's about the reality of um, hell, as we would say, and the suffering therein. So he's in anguish and flame. He's wanting his tongue cooled, and he can't have it. There's, again, just such a, I, I don't know, I hope you don't get tired of this. I just marvel in it because I'm a preacher, and I think that Jesus is the greatest preacher I've ever read or <laughs> studied. Um, look what he does. So, again, you've got this idea of he wants, yeah, he, he who feasted sumptuously every day now wants a single drop of water and can't have it. Where Lazarus, who couldn't have a single scrap from the table, now feasts with Abraham. So these, again, these compare and contrasts are just woven together so masterfully. All right, and then 25. But Abraham said, child... I meant to look this up. If one of you has like a Greek interlinear and you want to correct me on this, please do. Um, but I, I think that this is child, not my child. There's no acknowledgement that it's his child. It's just child. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Now again, the Pharisees are those who love money and they think that's all it's about is living your best life now. In your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So there's been a reversal of fortunes. That great reversal is a major theme, and arguably it's the most prevalent way that Jesus preaches. So the great reversal theme contains within it both law and gospel. Because the, as, as Mary sings foundationally in Luke's gospel, the rich are sent away empty, while the lowly are exalted, lifted up on high. So that reversal has within it one side of the coin as law and the other side of the coin as gospel, and they're the same reality. Okay, at 26, then um, he's laid out this principle in 25, and then 26, he says, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. In other words, even if Lazarus did want to come and bring you water for your tongue, he isn't able. And none may cross from there to us. So this chasm makes Abraham's bosom and Hades separate and impassable. Okay, at 27, and he said, so this is the rich man speaking to Abraham, then I beg you, Father, again, I beg you, Father, to send him, who? Lazarus, he's still on it. (laughs) He still thinks Lazarus is his servant. I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. So, I don't know, you can have some fun with the numbers. Five brothers, plus him, plus his father, there's seven in the household. Anyway, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Now that ties back into um, verse 16 of this chapter where Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. That's Moses and the prophets, the scriptures. So, Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. They have the holy scriptures. Let them hear them. And that hear them is because the words of Moses and the prophets are read in the synagogue. We're living in a time period where not everybody has their personal Bible. Books of the Bibles are in scrolls, and they're very expensive. And if you're a wealthy synagogue, you're maybe lucky to have one or two scrolls, one or two books, and that's it. And those are read publicly, and that's what you get. So that's what's going on here. The scriptures being read, and that's Abraham's response is, hey, if they're in synagogue, they're going to hear the law and the prophets. Thus also, the inference here is that the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament Scriptures, speak very plainly of the death of the faithful and the death of the unfaithful and the two different places in which you land. Abraham's bosom and... Sometimes the accusation is made that the Old Testament has no uh, real precise understanding of the afterlife or the intermediate state. This would be one of the texts you'd point to to challenge that. One of many texts. Of course, you can point to the Old Testament itself in many places where it's quite clear. But you also, that thing that says, I have five brothers. Mm -hmm. So apparently his brothers are as dumb and stupid as he is because they do the same thing. Yeah, they're pursuing something entirely different, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this guy doesn't really get it. His brothers, apparently, he's pretty convinced they don't get it. And even his, his desire is that Lazarus would come and warn them not to come here. That even kind of bespeaks a not getting it, right? Yeah. I mean, what, 
hey, whatever you do, don't die and go to Hades. Well, <laughs> okay, how do I do that? You know, so even, he's, he seems completely dead in his trespasses, completely spiritually dead even still at this point. Abraham's point is they have the scriptures. Let them hear the scriptures. The rich man responds in verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, so again, Jesus just driving this dagger in, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what's Jesus have in mind, do you think? Yeah. They're not hearing him. I mean, again, the Pharisees just kind of pull, like, or what do you do? Uh, what is it? You um, expose the fourth wall, or what is it? Break the fourth wall? I can't remember. But he just, in, in terms of uh, videos, um, film. So he basically is talking about himself to the Pharisees. They won't hear Moses in the script and the prophets. And even when he, raises, when he rises from the dead, they won't hear him either. Now, there is a, I don't want to make too much of this point because it isn't, a, it isn't a major point of our Lord's, but this does set a bit of a limitation on apologetics. I, I actually think it frames apologetics in the proper way because even if you were to prove that Jesus has ra- been risen from the dead, even if Jesus himself were to appear, would they believe? No. That's what Jesus says. And yeah, they think it's a magic trick. Yeah. So even Jesus appearing to someone isn't necessarily going to convert them. Proving that he's raised from the dead isn't going to convert them. What's going to convert them? God's word. The Holy Scriptures heard. That is, the Holy Scriptures proclaimed. So this, then, is our chief method. Now, I'm not against making a proof for the resurrection of Jesus. That's great. But just understand, you're not likely to convert someone with some rational argument like Jesus is raised from the dead, prove it wrong. Or Jesus is raised from the dead, if you don't accept the evidence, you destroy history and everything else you know about history, or you destroy the legal system and anything you believe about eyewitnesses. Those arguments are very rational, very true, but they're not likely to convert anyone's heart because it's the word of God that converts the heart. You might be knocking down obstacles. You might, as is more often the case, be building up and securing the faith of people who already believe. But as Jesus says here, um, the well, Peter makes the same argument in regard to the transfiguration. In his epistle, he says, look, we... We saw it with our eyes and we're eyewitnesses, but you have something more certain. The scriptures. More certain than his own eyewitness testimony is the Holy Scripture. So again, where does this idea of, of sola scriptura come from? It comes from Jesus. It comes from Peter and the apostles. All right, so that's where he leaves it. And again, we see Jesus ending a sermon on the law <laughs> and effectively breaking that fourth wall saying, look, you're not gonna, you don't believe me now, you won't believe, in me, you won't believe me when I rise from the dead. 
because you don't believe Moses and the prophets. If you did believe the word of God, then you would believe me also. All right, let's pause there and see if you have any, uh, any thoughts, any reflections. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. And that's the, uh, the folks that don't want to see this as a parable really drive home that point that Lazarus was raised from the dead and he did testify. And it's John's gospel that really hones in on that. You know, that's one of the remarkable things about John's gospel and the passion narrative therein. They want to kill Lazarus as much as they want to kill Jesus. They've got both of those guys in view. Why? Because Lazarus was running around telling everyone. Lazarus was the infleshed proof that this is God in the human flesh who raises the dead. Great point. Great point. Okay, so what good does your money do you for salvation? Zero. It might even be an obstacle. In fact, riches are more frequently an obstacle than they are a help in one's salvation. And that's a point Jesus makes more explicit when he's dealing with the rich young ruler. Remember, he says it's harder for a rich man to enter the heaven than to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he is singling out the rich as a category because there is a specific warning attached to riches that it is probably the most common false god the world has known. And that harkens back, that theme harkens back to what he said back in verse 13, if you recall. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon. Please. Uh, Two things. One, as far as the rich man, um, Jesus also encourage the use of your talents. Yep. And he was roared the, the man that used his talents to increase his riches. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that Jesus said, the poor will always be with us. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this is really necessarily about rich and poor, but about a poor person who was in need and a person who had wherewithal that saw that and didn't do anything. And that was his that was his downfall, not the fact that he had he was rich, but he had no compassion to this man that was had the swords. Yeah, I think that that's true. I don't. I think that that's just sort of um, another way of saying the same thing, a distinction without a difference. Uh, those who idolize wealth end up being compassionless, and uh, those who reject wealth, whether they have a lot in their bank account or a little, those who reject wealth as their God have Christ and are thus compassionate. And we might tie that in with the earlier theme, use unrighteous mammon in order to make eternal friends. 
That's the preceding section. Yeah, I mean, so it's just important to realize, and I think this is your point, um, <clears throat> are there rich men who are saved? Yes, because with God all things are possible. <laughs> um, Joseph of Arimathea shows up. Um, he's a rich man. He provides the tomb for Jesus. Uh, oh, gosh, why is, his uh, why is his name escaping me? Um, John 3. No, well, John, yeah, Zacchaeus is another one. Nicodemus, thank you. Nicodemus shows up at the end. Zacchaeus is another one who's wealthy, and he gives back, I think, what, fourfold or something like that, what he had taken. Um, but Nicodemus is the one I was thinking of, because Nicodemus is a man of means. They bring, like, 70 pounds of spices. That's an obscene amount. I mean, that cost a ton. And so, yeah, there, are there rich men in heaven? Yes. Because of their riches? No, because their riches helped them. No, because with God, all things are possible. All right, so now we've got the baseline of whether you've got a lot in your bank account or little in your bank account, you're still justified by grace through faith, apart from your works. The scriptures are, in many, many places, Old and New Testament, warn against wealth. It will take you away from the kingdom as fast or faster than anything else there is. If you've ever spent any time around profoundly rich people, you understand that it transforms the way they think, too. And they start to think in ways that are completely alien from the way the common man thinks. It's why a lot of our policies are the way they are in this country. <laughs> but they also start to get a God complex. They don't think they have a God complex. That's part of the blindness. But when you can just get whatever you want just like that, that affects the way you perceive the world and you interact with the world. Bill Gates gives uh, more to charity, apparently, than any other rich man. Most of those charities are his own. <laughs> to say nothing of how he's escaping taxes by doing that. So, you know, a lot of the, the quote-unquote philanthropy of the rich is smoke and mirrors, too. Um, and so a lot of the rich that seem to, well, I don't know, they give a lot of money away. Yeah, really? Study it a little. Not sure you'll come to the same altruistic conclusion about these fellows. So, yeah, um, thoroughgoing in the scriptures, especially in Luke. Remember in the, um, well, in the Magnificat, you have the poor and the rich singled out. The poor are lifted up, the rich are cast down. There's no asterisk. Well, actually, some rich people are saved. It's just, that's not a theme. That's not a way of speaking. This harkens back to many Old Testament scriptures, um, including Ahaz and Naboth, that whole thing with the vineyard. And then um, you've got it in other places in Luke, the, sermon, the difference between the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the Sermon on the Plain, which is recorded in Luke, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, full stop, one of the major themes of James is uh, the rich man who drags you into court and treats you abusively um, versus the poor man who can't do anything for you and how foolish it is for Christians to look at the rich and treat him differently than you would treat the poor because the rich are villains. <laughs> the rich are the very ones who are going to persecute you. These are just said without apology, without asterisk, without explanation, thoroughgoing throughout the scriptures. I believe that God's point in all of that is that, yeah, if you're rich, you can be saved. But you, instead of thinking of like, 
hey, that's just going to grease the skids and make my trip into heaven all the more sweet and easy. It's quite the opposite. That's going to be something you have to constantly be cautious about and be careful about in your ministration and make sure that you're serving the Lord first and seeing all the things he's blessed you with as a temporary stewardship. Here also Job factors in, doesn't he? I mean, Job is a profoundly wealthy man, profoundly wealthy. And I think it's in a single day, all of his wealth is stripped away, and he's, and along with his health, his marriage is basically destroyed. She says, curse God and die. How's that for a helpmate? <laughs> so um, everything is taken away from him. He goes from riches to rags. But the strength of Job is that he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So that too has these themes of rich and poor and um, making sure that you serve the Lord and not mammon. Joseph would be another story like this. Joseph's constantly like getting everything, being put in second command of Potiphar's house. Well, remember he's the, start at the beginning, but he's the um, only son who gets the fancy coat. He's the beloved of his father. And then he's betrayed and thrown into a pit. All right, well, God brings him up out of the pit where he's literally sold into slavery and puts him second command at Potiphar's house. He can do whatever he wants. But Potiphar's wife is a Kardashian and, you know, she makes all these scurrilous claims against him and he lands in prison. Now he's got nothing. He's got rats for company. And God lifts him all the way up to where he's second only to the Pharaoh, right? So this is another tale of riches come and riches go, whether you find yourself the right-hand man of Elon Musk or whether you find yourself in some dingy prison, none of that matters. What matters is faith in God, right? Okay, well, maybe enough on that. The point about the poor will always be with us. You know, he would. I think he was with the, the house of yeah. Mary and Martha, and uh, and Judas said, "Yeah, let's. Why are you spending money with all these important uh, anointing and with all this expense? Why don't you give to the poor?" And Judas said, "Well, you know, we'll all the poor will always be with us. Mm-hmm. How do you take that?" Yeah. So <laughs> this is the this is the same argument for well, we shouldn't we shouldn't make our churches beautiful places because we should give all our money to the poor. And you'll have atheists make that charge all the time, and sometimes Christians too. Why do we make our churches beautiful? To honor Christ. So, wait for the inception to. I just exist, just existed in multiple dimensions. Uh, okay, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the same reason the woman anointed the feet of Christ with the costly perfume. Sure, it's 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 a waste. It's not essential. It's worship. And that worship is honored by God. And his point in context is... Uh, remember, the poor you will always have with me, but we, uh, I, I will not always be with you. You will not always have me. And so, yeah, that's, that's a special case, to be sure. We're not able to anoint Jesus' feet. But you hear the old Judas refrain of, oh, that money should go for the poor. You should answer it with, the poor you will always have with you. There's a time and a place to honor God as well. 
and those things ought not be juxtaposed. Of course, that's betrayed by the fact that John tells us Judas, who's so interested in giving it to the poor, was he? No. He was picking out of it himself. And that's often the motivation of the folks inside the church who don't want that. They want it to go to the poor. Really? No, they're pet projects within the congregation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the point I'm making is that riches is not necessarily a vice, and being poor is not necessarily virtue. That's right. It's how you take it and what you do with it. I would agree with that statement. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes me think of the, the tricky situation of uh, donors. Yep. For, the, for the glory of God, but like in the Renaissance, you have these, you know, these portraits where the donor will be there, you know, handing the church to Christ, or some, you know, mm-hmm. different formats, and sometimes they would not be good guys. Mm-hmm. They would be trying to cover these things. Other times they might have been perfectly fine, but um, not necessarily always a good thing. And sometimes maybe even like a yeah. craving thing. Yeah, yeah. I, it's kind of one of the reasons, I mean, we're kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of practicalities here, but we don't have those uh, golden donated-by-so-and-so plates anywhere around on our campus because the idea is freely you give to God and together we're all glorifying and one person is able to give maybe monetarily and another person is able to give with hours of time. And I mean, we've, we've got just such wonderful people around here who do unseen work. It's one of the reasons why I need to do a better job of thanking people, but I'm mortified of it because I'm going to leave somebody out. And, you know, there are people here who spend countless hours just doing little menial tasks that maybe nobody notices, but you would notice if they didn't do it. (laughs) So, yeah, I think we look at it as it's all worship of Christ, and it's all we as the members of the body of Christ in this place, and we do this all corporately. It's all us together, whether you've been given this blessing or the other blessing. Um, We're not going to elevate one person above another. That's part of the beauty, too. You kind of see that, especially in the Old Testament, where they're building a tabernacle, and he gives certain people real talent in, in making jewelry mm-hmm. and sewing and, and skills, and they're diff- from different tribes. So and so is going to be a great craftsman, and then this tribe is the guy over there that's going to do something, and you see mm-hmm. the glorifying God doing things from mm-hmm. sewing to metalwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Sometimes, too, I mean, while it is absolutely true that the church, properly speaking, isn't a building, it's believers in Christ gathered in a place. And that's good to remember. If your church gets knocked down by a tornado, that's good to remember. But sometimes people will take that too far to the other extreme and to an error of like, well, who cares if the churches get knocked down? We um, can do just as well without them and maybe better. That's an utterly foolish thing to say based on somebody who maybe has their head in the clouds and not in reality. We need a place to gather, God willing. Um, And if God permits and provides that, we ought to fight for it and keep it. Um, Just having a physical presence within a community makes a difference. You know, even when you drive down the freeway and you see the church up on the hill and we don't share their doctrine but you see the great big cross you can at least give thanks to god there's a great big cross over the over the freeway in california god be praised it's fantastic Um, the same thing for these beautiful cathedrals that testify 
Um, even if we disagree with the theology that's taught there, that has been taught there for hundreds of years, they testify of the faithfulness of those men that came before, what they valued, what they thought was important. And it stands as a testimony against our superficial, shallow, uh, pragmatic times. And so I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of like, if I thought we were going to be persecuted and not able to meet publicly um, in the short term, in the next few years here at Faith, guess what I would do? Continue to beautify the sanctuary. <laughs> Continue to act as if God is going to provide for us, and this is going to be a testimony not only to all who are here, but to gen- for generations to come that this is what we believe, and this is what mattered to us, and this is where we were willing to, to put our... Um, to use our money. We've had people come to our congregation, they said, we drove by and saw. That's why we're here. We drove by and realized that you're right next door and we need to get um, back into church. If you don't have a physical building, you can't do that. Um, we, we went up a few years ago, our committee that's charged with doing the uh, renovations in the sanctuary, we visited a number of churches and there was a I want to say a Syrian Orthodox church. I'd have to double check on that. Was, David, do you remember? Yeah, is Ser- that... Serbian. Serbian, thank Serbian you. Orthodox. I knew it didn't sound exactly right. Serbian Orthodox. Serbian Orthodox. And they had this beautiful placard on it by um, immigrants over here who had labored and basically everything they had dumped into this glorious building and it is that this is a living testimony. And you walk in there, and the whole gospel is presented visually. And it's a transcendent place where you walk in, and you don't have to tell people to be quiet. They're already quiet. I think that that's a wonderfully commendable thing. And I think, if anything, we ought to fight against the pragmatism and the, the Judas spirit that <laughs> invaded all of our thinking and realize that we're not Gnostics. Christianity has a form, even if that form is only your body and the bodies of the believers gathered together, even if that form is just inexpensive bread and inexpensive wine. That's the form. But if you have the ability to make that form uh, more reflective of the glory and the reality, why wouldn't you do that? I don't think we should. So, anyway, I think that those themes tie in, too, with this idea of how we use wealth and, um, in the earlier part of chapter 16. So, I'm seeing that we're two minutes over, and that's a fine place to break. I'll hang out if you want to chat any more about um, this, and of course, next week we can take any questions or considerations you have. Otherwise, we'll move on. Um, our next destination, unless I change my mind, is probably uh, Luke 17 verse 7, with the unworthy servants. So we'll get a look at that, and that will be an important theological teaching of our Lord. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.